Why, hello, everyone. My name is J.P. Dervagosian. I'm an essayist, Lambda Literary Fellow, and founder of the Queer Armenian Library. And this is a podcast for folks who are asking themselves, what's the next queer book I'm going to read? Welcome to 7 Minutes in Book Heaven, where I interview queer authors about the new books they have coming out for us to love and to cuddle up with. We're a partner podcast of This Queer Book Saved My Life, which has a new episode dropping next week. And today I'm joined by Joseph Plaster to discuss his new book, Kids on the Street, Queer Kinship and Religion in San Francisco's Tender Loin. Hello, Joseph. Hi there. How are you? I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here as well. Right now, I'm I'm actually in San Francisco. It's a really cold and drizzly day out, so I'm I'm feeling very cuddly right now and ready to cuddle up with a book. Oh my god, I love it! I love it! <laughs> it's fantastic. Exactly why we have this podcast. So, how does our podcast work? I have seven questions for Joseph, and we're going to spend the next seven minutes or so in this virtual studio talking about kids on the street queer kinship and religion in San Francisco's Tenderloin, and more about the amazing writer and academic who is Dr. Joseph Plaster. So, Joseph, are you ready? I am ready. Let's do it. All right. I will set the timer, and here we are. Question number one. Would you please describe Kids on the Street, Queer Kinship, and Religion in San Francisco's Tenderloin as if you're sharing it with your celebrity crush and telling us who that crush is? Sure, yes. So I I was recently at this queer gathering out in the middle of the Redwoods in Northern California, and someone asked me, who is your gay diva? And, you know, I had to think about it uh, (laughs) just a little bit, but my answer was ultimately Bjork. Bjork is my gay diva, and I'm going to say that Bjork is my celebrity crush. Um, so if I was ex- trying to explain this book to Bjork, I'd, I'd probably remind her of her song, It's Not Up to You, which I think came out many decades ago, probably, you know, early 2000s, and tell her that, you know, the book is kind of like the lyrics in that song. So that they're, they're, is this set of lyrics if you wake up and the day feels broken just lean into the crack and it will tremble ever so nicely notice how it sparkles oh. down there and I, I really love those those lyrics and they've kind of like stayed with me ever since i first heard them decades ago and you know this book is is really about the the kind of social worlds that were created by self-described boys, girls, kids on the street, many of whom were were tarnished as criminal and immoral, mm. as, as kind of undesirable blights, um, many of them runaways who were forced into these kind of spaces of abandonment in downtown vice districts. So, you know, the question I and many other people posed is, what happens when the whole world turns their back on you, when you've been discarded, when everything feels broken? And you know, for a lot of the the kids, the answer is to kind of lean into those cracks and tremble ever so nicely and take all that toxicity and make it sparkle in some way. You know, so I write about all the ways that abandoned youth reinterpreted the impact of abandonment from the 20s to the present by creating these new queer worlds, like by developing street families and kinship networks these kind of religious formations I call street churches by telling all these wildly creative stories and creating migratory circuits. 
and you know through fashion like you know drag queens and hair fairies who leaned into the cracks that uh that bjork uh sings about and kind of like made things sparkle with the transformative power of rhinestones and performance and and so on i can say more about that if there's oh, that's there's time great. that's a good teaser that's a really good teaser and i have to say start i haven't finished reading it yet but i've gotten started and it is all of those things so i really recommend for folks obviously to check it out if it's all right we'll go on to question number two which is sure. what's a sentence from a novel essay poem or other book that every time you read it it gives you all the feels Okay, so the sentence I have in mind requires a little bit of a preamble. It, it was written by the cultural theorist uh, Eve Sedgwick, uh, mm-hmm. and she wrote this essay called Paranoid Reading and Reparative Reading, or You're So Paranoid, You Probably Think This Essay Is About You, which is a title <laughs> that I I mean, like nobody can write a title that good. Um, so she talks about the, the difference between these paranoid and reparative styles of perceiving the world. And it's a complicated argument, but basically a paranoid reading is that things are getting bad. They're, they're only going to get worse. You can never be paranoid about uh, enough. And she gives the example of a kind of litigious colleague who not only imagines her to be as familiar with the laws of libel as she is, but eventually makes me so. And then she contrasts this with what she calls a reparative reading, which is about hope, which is about the importance of pleasure and aesthetics. So she writes about all of these kind of practices of reparative reading. And this leads me to the the sentence that I really love, which is actually the last sentence um, in the essay. Uh, and it's, quote, what we can best learn from such practices are perhaps the many ways selves and communities succeed in extracting sustenance from the objects of a culture, even of a culture whose avowed desire has often not been to sustain them. So I, I just think there's so much in that that sentence and her way of perceiving the world um, really contributed to the way I put together this this book. It's I was going to say how, how how do street kids who are often thrown out of you know the family or the the church find sustenance in from those those cultural institutions who you know have have thrown them out. I can absolutely see the link there. And Cedric, oh, okay. Uh, question number three, if we can keep moving along here, what do you feel is the best sentence you've ever written? Okay, so this is. I think the best sentence, not because it's the most writerly necessarily, but because it really took me a long time to figure out what the book I was writing was about, you know? And often we figure out what things are about by writing. Um, so this sentence, I think, encapsulates the, the kind of main argument I'm making in the book. And, and here it is. I represent a politics where the marginal position of street youth, the self-defined kids on the street, hair fairies, hustlers, queens, and undesirables is the basis for a moral economy of reciprocity and mutual aid. So that's, it's just to say that street kids develop this, this politics based on reciprocity, which basically means if you watch my back, I'll watch yours. And they did this not necessarily because they were heroic or altruistic, though sometimes they were, but because it was a kind of necessity for mutual survival. And that's what the book is about. And so I'm hoping that the book is a kind of political resource um, in the present. 
Well, it is for me. I hope for everybody else as well. Okay, question number four. What's the best romantic scene you've ever read? Okay, so I love Janae, um, who wrote primarily from the, the 40s to the 60s. Um, oh. he, re- he wrote Our Lady of the Flowers reportedly when he was in prison and wrote it on the kind of brown paper that was issued to inmates in order to make bags. And in terms of the the kind of romantic scene, I'm going to cheat a little bit, but Janae also made a kind of foray into filmmaking. He created this silent short film called A Song of Love in 1950. Um, and there's this this wonderful story that takes place at an unnamed stone prison where a guard sees two male arms swinging floral branches out of the the barred windows and the guard enters the prison and looks into each cell observing the the inmates and so two prisoners are in separate cells and they're sharing a cigarette through a hole in the wall between their cells by blowing smoke back and forth between a straw. So I, there's something like really beautiful and poetic about the scene. And I think romantic too, even though they never touch. And I, you know, I think about this was made at a time when homosexual homosexuality was criminalized in the United States. But, mm-hmm. you know, all of these people whose love intimacy was criminalized still found ways to, to share intimacies. Absolutely. Actually, I want to say uh, that is very tender. I can feel the yearning in that. And the visual of that is really getting to me right now. Right, right. You need to watch that film. Absolutely. We'll put links to it in the show notes and on our website. Okay, what is uh, next question? What is the worst writing advice you've ever got? The worst writing advice I ever got? Okay, so... I I think that I received the worst writing advice in grad school. So I, you know, I spent many years working as an independent public historian in San Francisco, and then I enrolled in a PhD program in American Studies. And I remember someone in grad school telling me that what I really needed to do was find an advisor. I needed to replicate their methods and their writing style, basically become a kind of miniature version of them. And then what they were going to do was promote me and find me a faculty job. And then I would go on to kind of create other versions of myself. I I think that was terrible, terrible advice. I ended up uh, finding mentors Mm -hmm. who were actually not at all like me and who enabled me to create a, a piece of writing that was not at all like their writing style. So I worked with uh, someone who was an expert in performance studies, a, a, an ethnographer, a cultural historian, and I think I was inspired by aspects of their their writing um, and inspired by them as people, but I was able to take all of those influences and create something entirely new, I think. I'm so glad that you were able to get around that terrible advice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final question. How do we follow you on social? How do we order your book? Oh my gosh. Okay, so you can order the book on the Duke University Press website. I believe they have a sale going on right now, a 50% off sale. 
You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter. I think Twitter is jplaster3. Um, Facebook, you can find me under Joey Plaster. And just, you know, do a search for Joseph Plaster online. You'll find all kinds of resources. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Joseph. I really enjoyed getting to know a little bit about your work, and I hope that folks do follow you on social and check out the amazing work that you're doing. And obviously, y'all need to read this book. It is fascinating and a political resource. So thank you, Joseph, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this has been another episode of Seven Minutes in Book Heaven, which is presented to you by This Queer Book, Save My Life. Our podcasts are executive produced by Jim Pounds. Our associate producers are Archie Arnold, Natalie Cruz, Paul Kafer, Nicole Olilla, Joe Perrazzo, Bill Shea, and Sean Smith. You too can be an associate producer, and we welcome you to join us. All the details are at patreon.com slash thisqueerbook. Transcripts of all of our episodes are available on thisqueerbook.com. You can buy the books featured on our podcast on our bookshop page, thisqueerbook.com slash bookshop. We are on Facebook, plus we're at This Queer Book on Instagram and Twitter. My name is JP Derbogosian, and stay tuned to this space every Tuesday for new episodes of 7 Minutes in Book Heaven or This Queer Book Save My Life. Until then, see you queers and allies in the bookstores.